0: Back in Revelation, so we are in Revelation 19, so if you were here last week, then we are going to pick up. Uh, We kind of made it halfway through. Uh, If you were not here last week, we're in Revelation 19, and we are near the end of verse, we're in 16-ish, the uh, end of 15, I think is where we kind of ended off, and then we're going to do 16. We're going to try to finish up today uh, through Revelation, the the rest of the chapter, Um, and uh, this is... Today, it just uh, we're going to get into some things that we talked about a long time ago. Actually, when I was in here with you guys, and we talked about Revelation 14, a lot of this stuff was foreshadowed then, or not even foreshadowed. Really, it was it was accomplished then. Uh, but now we're getting more. We're there time-wise. We're in the detail, um, and so we're there chronologically. Uh, whereas in 14, it was kind of uh, it, it told us the end game, but we hadn't gotten to the the six um, bold judgments. So today, this is get it gets pretty uh, graphic uh, as we see Christ come and judge all those who've come to fight against him. Um, and, uh, and like I said, uh, I think understanding what we've already studied in Revelation 14 and 16, again, like every week, looking at the Old Testament and seeing how this stuff is described very clearly in Isaiah and Ezekiel, Zephaniah, Zechariah, um, Joel. Uh, we're going to see some of those in Psalms, talk about it as well. And when you start looking at the Scripture as a whole... It really helps uh, fill in the gaps, or not fill in the gaps. It, it helps bring together all that the Lord has revealed to us uh, about this, uh, this day where Christ splits the heavens and comes back, the day we call Armageddon. You know, and the world uses uh, this Armageddon terminology often to describe, time, you know, when things get bad or when there's, you know, some ensuing war coming or something like that. But when you look at Armageddon biblically, uh, the world has no idea what they're talking about when they talk about Armageddon. Usually, they just you know they, it's like into the world kind of terminology, but it's into the world terminology for the world in a sense that they can do something about it. It's like Armageddon's coming, let's stop it, or Armageddon's coming, let's figure out how to get through this. But when Armageddon comes, it's over. It's it's there's there's no fi- Christ is the victor on the day of Armageddon. Uh, all those who are not with Christ, it's just it's instantaneous end, and we'll talk about that today. But actually, before I jump in, let's, let's pray and uh, ask the Lord to help us to understand his word. Father, we know we're coming before you to open your truth, and we know that these are things that have been given to us by you, uh, they've been revealed to us uh, by our Father for his children, and we know that you've given these things to us for us to understand and for us to, to know you more, for us to love you more, to fear you more, to know your truth so that we can follow you. Uh, Father, we also know that these things are undiscernible uh, by those who don't know you and those who uh, are not equipped with your spirit and those who stand against you. And we see that so often in our world as people mock your word, uh, as uh, the, the same words that are life and power and, and truth for us uh, are, are, are just um, uh, seem foolish to those around us. But Father, as we open your word today, we know that these not only are our warnings uh, for those who stand against you, but they're they're blessings for those who are with you. Uh, This is uh, your account given to us ahead of time of what the return of our king will be when he comes to rule and reign on this earth and to bring his bride, the church, and all the redeemed that belong to him, together with him, to rule and reign on this earth with him. And we long for that day. So as we read this today, Father, help us to understand uh, with simplicity and clarity, help us to uh, discern these things and, and help them to be convicting to us so that we live holy lives here on this earth and, and help us just to long to see you face to face. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Well, all right. Well, like I said, kind of uh, recapping and getting us back to this place. Last week, we talked about the return of Jesus Christ, our King. Uh, we have finished Revelation 17 through 1910, which was the judgment of Babylon, judgment of the, the, the city of Babylon and the world system. We talked about the fall of uh, false religion, the fall of the economic, political systems of the world. Uh, and, and then finally, you have this, this Antichrist, uh, the Antichrist, um, who during this time not only uh, gains power, but uh, worship by all of the world. Um, and now ha- is gathering the kings of the world to come and to fight against the people of God and fight against Jesus Christ for one final battle. And Like I said, this is described many times in the Old Testament. We've already looked at it in Revelation 14 and 16, um, and this is the, the Armageddon battle. So this is biblically what Armageddon is. And so last week, like I said, we, uh, we, start, we pick back up on the chronological sequence of the judgments of the seven bulls. We talked about that. Uh, we saw that the, the um, I wasn't with you guys, but y'all studied the seven bowls in Revelation 16. And that seventh bowl, this is, the, Revelation 19:11 picks up where Revelation 16 left off with that chronological sequence of what happens when the seventh bowl of God's wrath is poured out on earth. And it says in Revelation 19, actually, we can read, uh, I, don't, I don't think I put it up there. Uh, it says in Revelation 19:11 through 16, uh, and I saw heaven open... And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a new name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So last time we looked at basically a description of who this rider on the white horse is, and and clearly identified it as Jesus Christ. This is Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the King uh, of, of all kings, the Lord of all lords, come, to claim his throne, uh, to bring his bride. We just had the marriage uh, supper of the Lamb in heaven, and now he comes to inherit what belongs to him, the earth and the kingdom and and, uh, the land, uh, and to rescue all of his people. And so we looked at all these descriptions of Christ, and it was so uh, amazing just seeing who Christ is. One of the things we said last time is he's... Uh, four times in this passage he's named with six different names. And we looked at the first four of those names. The first is he is called faithful, which means he's sure, trustworthy, reliable. Uh, the second uh, name that he is called is true, which means he is truthful, true, genuine. Um, we talked about how God is called faithful and truth throughout the Bible. And so this is just, again, the the faithfulness, the reliability of God doing what he says he does. He always does everything that he says he does exactly like he says he will do it. Uh, and he does all things with perfect uh, trustworthiness and, uh, and, and truthfulness. Uh, the third name he had was a name that no one knows except himself, and so there's not a lot that you can say about that other than no one knows except Christ, and it's not revealed to us. Um, and then finally, his fourth name was that he is called the Word of God, and we talked about that from Hebrews 4 and John 1, other places where Christ is called the Word of God. Uh, and, uh, and it talked about him... Uh, we we did talk about his uh, robe that he's clothed the robe dipped in blood and we said we had talked more about that uh, this week so we're going to talk more about uh, his his robe dipped in blood what that means uh, and then um, and the description of the the judgment that's coming we also talked about the armies that come with him uh, I don't have a slide for that but basically the armies that come with him are the saints those who are clothed in white which is the uh, the the uh, the works of the saints and so these are those who are washed by the blood of Christ, those who are redeemed by him. These are people, these are the saints of God coming with Christ as he comes to rule and reign on this earth. And then finally, this is where we left off in verse 15. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword and uh, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. We talked about that last week um, and talked about how uh, he comes to, to strike down, means to smite, to hit, to slay. So he comes to uh, slay his enemies. Um, we talked about uh, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 40, uh, that talk about this, that from the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Uh, all the nations are nothing. They're meaningless to him. He just speaks and they're like they're like dust and they, he it says he merely blows on them and they wither. So again, it just shows the, the power, the might of our sovereign God, of Christ the King. And that all these things that are in play and all the evil of the world and all of that is still perfectly in his hands, and it only accomplishes his purposes. Uh, All of Satan's tactics and plans and temptations and all that, yes, will cause those who are enemies of God to to fall away, but for those who belong to him, all those things will be used for their refinement, uh, for them to become more like Christ, uh, for them to die in Christ. uh, And ultimately, all these things bring glory to him. And we have to remember that, that, that when it comes to Christ fighting evil... The fight is merely, he, he speaks and it's done. He, 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 he decides the timing and it's over. Does that make sense? That's our Lord and that's our King. And then it says that he'll rule them with a rod of iron. The same rod that he uses to strike down his enemies and strike down the nations. Like Psalm 2 talks about, it says you'll break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter the kingdoms of the earth like earthenware. He uses that same rod to shepherd his people. When it says he'll rule them with a rod of iron... Once he establishes himself as king, that rule is, is a shepherding rule. It's a caring rule. But it's a, it's a firm rule. Like he, there, there's not going to be an allowance of, of evil during his thousand-year reign here on Earth. So again, I, I used to uh, tell my, my youth in my college when we talk about this, right now, evil is prevalent. Good is very tiny, and even the good that we can see and the good that is out there is so short-lived and sometimes even hypocrisy that the good is very in short supply right now. But when Christ reigns on this planet for a thousand years, it'll be the very opposite. Good will be prevalent. Good will be everywhere. Righteousness, justice, peace, and truth will be everywhere. But there's still the potential for evil during that time. And we'll talk more about that when we get there. Um, it's very uh, clear in the Old Testament. There's a time where the Messiah reigns, where the Christ reigns. That, that he's on this earth, but there's still the potential for sin, the potential for evil, the potential for death. And so that same rod that he strikes down his enemies with, he'll rule and shepherd his people during that time. But it means that there'll be swift justice. There'll be swift justice, justice with this uh, during his rule and reign as king. And so that's where we left off last week. And we, I think we, talked, we started to talk about this, but then we, uh, I held off because I feel like this goes into the, the next part, the judgment part. But the next, the next part of the verse, verse 16, it says, he treads, uh, And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Now, I wanted to bring up some stuff that we had talked about before, because I think it helps. Um, when it says he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God... Uh, just when it says the fierce wrath, it, it's, it's a double, it's using the word wrath twice. It's talking about the full wrath or the full anger. This is the full fury of a holy God being poured out on his enemies who have come to fight him. And we talked about this in Revelation 14 already. When I was with you guys and we talked about this in Revelation 14, it talked about the wine press of God's wrath. And if you remember, uh, in Revelation 14, it says, the angel swung a sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth "...and threw them into the great, great winepress of the wrath of God." Now again, this is at the very end of that. We pulled out, looked at the whole scope of the messianic history from Revelation 12 to 14, and this is the very end. And so this is the, this is the, the, the final Armageddon battle, but from that pullout and uh, the descriptions that we saw back there. And it says, "...he threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God." And it says, "...the winepress was trodden outside the city, outside of Jerusalem." And the blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. So again, this is Revelation 14 describing it um, in and uh, um, uh, pulling out of the, the, the chronology. Uh, and we talked about that back in the day and, and what all of this means. And I, I remember showing you, if you were here at that time, pictures of what an ancient winepress looked like. This is what he's describing uh, a wine press, basically they put the grapes up at the top, they would stomp on these grapes and the juice would flow out and go down into uh, the little cistern there at the bottom and that's where they would collect the, the, the juice that they would use for wine. And so when he's talking about the, the, uh, the Lord taking his enemies and, and, um, and uh, the way he described it was, threw them into the great wine press of his wrath. This is a symbolic or a picture to describe God spilling the blood of all of the enemies that have come to fight against Him on this day, uh, and He talks about it happening outside the city. It talks about the blood going being up to the horse's bridles, which is about—I uh, mean—that's that, a four-foot-ish uh, uh, depth. So this is a massive amount of blood, uh, and again, this is a, a picture. But the 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 way that the Lord is describing it is like this: This is the Lord just. Um, Crushing his enemies, spilling their blood, and it talks about the blood flowing for 200 miles up to the horse's bridle. Actually, here's a couple of old ancient cistern or um, wine presses that they have uncovered over in Israel. Uh, and uh, so it kind of gives you uh, a picture of what they were like. But having that in mind helps you to understand this. And then again, just to bring this back up and do it quickly. Uh, God talking about His judgment being like a wine press, or being like, um, or being um, His garments. Uh, here in Genesis 49, sorry, my thought straight. In Genesis 49, we have one of the first prophecies of the Messiah outside of Genesis three, and it talks about Him washing His garments in wine and His robe in the blood of grapes. And this is something that you're going to see continually be described uh, more and more in prophecy throughout Scripture. Uh, is when the Messiah comes, uh, he is going to his. He's going to be bloody. Um, in Isaiah sixty through sixty-two, uh, you have one of the greatest descriptions of the uh, millennial kingdom, and it's it's a wonderful. It's like when Christ is on this earth and what the earth is like during his millennial reign, um, and uh, it, it's it, we're going to look at that when we talk about the millennial reign. But right after Isaiah sixty-two, uh, it describes. This Armageddon battle that happens before the reign of Christ, and in Isaiah 63, it describes it like this: It says, "Who is this who comes from Edom?" So this is south. Uh, Edom is, is is south of Israel. Um, it says, "With garments glow, uh, of glowing colors from Basra." Basra is a city in Edom that is south of Israel. Uh, And from Basra, uh, south of Israel, up to Megiddo, which is where Armageddon is supposed to be on the plains of Megiddo, is about a 200-mile stretch. It's the full land of Israel. So this is like basically from south to north. Uh, this This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength... It is I who speak in righteousness mighty to save. So this is a direct prophecy of God, of the Messiah, of who we know is Jesus Christ. And he's come to redeem, to save Israel, and to reign as king, to fulfill all the promises that God had said in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And then it describes him coming in this red apparel. It says, why is your apparel red, and your garments like the one who treads the winepress? Again, another prophecy of the Messiah or of the Christ with... Garments that are covered in 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 uh, uh, red or covered in uh, burst grapes. He says, "I have trodden the wine uh, trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me." So again, he does all the judging himself. He says, "I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their life blood is sprinkled on my garments." So this is the first time we see the red on his garments is the blood of his enemies that has been that has been that has stained his garments as he tramples on them with his feet. So again, it's a symbolic, picturesque way of showing that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, trampling his enemies and spilling their blood. He says, I've stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. My year of redemption has come. So it's time. I looked and there was no one to help me. And I was astonished that there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. So that's from Isaiah 63. And again, describing Jesus Christ, a direct prophecy of Christ, when he returns, Uh, and he returns, he comes from Edom, and and he just wipes out his enemies, and he's covered in the blood uh, of his enemies as he pours out his wrath. Uh, In Isaiah 34, again, another prophecy of Christ in Isaiah. Uh, talks about this. It says, Draw near, O nations, to hear and to listen, O peoples, and let the earth and all it contains hear, and the world and all that springs from it. It says, For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them, he has given them over to slaughter. Again, this has not happened historically yet, but it must. It says, So their slain will be thrown out, and their corpses will give off their stench, and the mountains will be drenched with their blood. And all the hosts of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. And all their hosts will also wither away, and the, as the leaf withers from the vine, uh, or as one withers from the fig tree. For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom. So there we are, south of Israel again. And upon the people who I have devoted to destruction, the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is uh, uh, sated with, a fat, uh, with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats with the fat of the kidneys of rams, for the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. So there we are again, a great slaughter uh, in the land of Edom. So anyway, like I said, these are two different prophecies from Isaiah that are talking about this final day of the Lord, a day that hasn't happened. We haven't seen a day where the Lord judges all of his enemies, where he comes and he wipes them out, and and, and there's massive amounts of blood spilt like this. Uh, Some people try to talk about this being when he um, um, uh, had... Uh, armies uh, wipe out Edom or other battles back in the day. And again, there are we we did talk about how the Lord fulfills prophecies, but how in those prophecies there's things that weren't fulfilled the way he said it. And so prophecies sometimes have a near and a far fulfillment. And we talked about that with Babylon. You know, God did destroy Babylon. Many of the things talks about Babylon in the Old Testament were done, but there were some things that were not done. Uh, In fact, if if, uh, either one, the Lord uh, exaggerated... Or, uh, he didn't accomplish what he said he would accomplish. Or, there has to be a future Babylon where he'll finish that. Same thing with Israel. There's many things that God promised to Israel that he did. And there's some things that he did not do. So either one, he couldn't accomplish what he said he would do. Or, there must be some future Israel that all these things will happen. Does that make sense? And we know that's how prophecy works. Because we look at the prophecies that God has already fulfilled. And he always fulfills them exactly like he says. He says, So you don't have to turn it spiritual and go. Well, maybe the blood represents this, and maybe the mountains represent this. It's that the blood is blood, the mountains are mountains. It's just going to come. It just hasn't happened yet. And so we have these prophecies already. Like I said, from Genesis, from Isaiah, the talk about the Messiah coming and his 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 garments are stained with blood, or you know, he's trampled the 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 wine press and his garments are stained red. Uh, And then, like I said in Isaiah, we see that that's. Blood, and we see from Revelation 14, it says the wine press was trodden outside the city, um, and uh, and we talked about how the kings of the earth come together against Jerusalem to fight. Uh, in Revelation 16, um, do I have that? Uh, 16, 12 through 18, when we talked about the bowl, we talked about how the kings of the earth were being prepared, or a way was prepared by God for the kings of the earth to come. So God invites them to come and fight Him at Jerusalem. And he paves the way by drying up the Euphrates River. And it says, um, uh, he, A way to be prepared for the kings of the east to go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So again, you have the destruction of the city of Babylon. You got the Antichrist that, you know, uh, that, that gets together the kings of the earth who were weeping as they watched Babylon being destroyed and they gather them together to come and fight. Uh, we talked about in Revelation uh, 16 as well, it talks about um, uh, demons that, that look like frogs that go out and seduce the kings of the earth to to listen to the Antichrist to come. And so you got the Antichrist, who is seducing the world leaders to follow him into battle, and he seems like an invincible leader. He's risen from the dead, he can do miracles, He stopped the two... Um, uh, witnesses in Jerusalem. This guy looks like he's invincible. He's got the false prophet with him, who can also do miracles. So you got two world leaders, or a world leader and a prophet, um, that the world worships and believes that this guy can lead the. I mean, he's he's an invincible leader, uh, and now he's convincing the people to come and to fight against the people of God and against Christ uh, in Jerusalem. And basically, the picture is painting is you got armies from from uh, the. The, these, these nations that come from all these nations that, that fill this, this, this land mass from Megiddo to Basra. And then the uh, Valley of Jehoshaphat, which is the Kidron Valley right outside Jerusalem. So it's just basically 180 to 200 miles of army coming to fight the people of God. It's, it's, it's an insurmountable force led by an invincible leader. And it looks like in some sense you could say, you could see why the people of the earth would think that they're going to have victory in this massive army and this invincible leader. And, uh, and again, uh, but we know what the result... Actually, I, I threw a map up there of where Edom is at the south and where Megiddo, the Valley of Megiddo, which is where we get the, uh, the name Armageddon from. And so, and then this is the uh, Kidron Valley, which is the Valley of Jehoshaphat right outside the city of Jerusalem. So basically, you just imagine the armies that come together and they come together against Jerusalem and they're just filling uh, the land. Um, I, in a commentary by Henry Morris, he talks about it, and uh, he guesstimates it would be an army of, uh, I can't remember how many million, a few million, but it's not, uh, it's not um, uh, an impossible, it's not impossible to, for this to be a re- realistic number of people um, that, that could, if they were fighting side by side uh, for, for that amount of space, and so this is just another map of it. So the point being is you got a, a large number of people, and the Bible describes uh, uh, this this battle in Revelation uh, sixteen and fourteen. We already talked about the wine press of his wrath and the blood being two hundred miles up to four feet tall. It's a bl- uh, gruesome outcome, um, and basically it's it's uh, roughly that entire distance. And the the idea is that it. it biblically, that Christ starts in the south and just starts slaughtering all the way up to Megiddo, and then he comes and reigns on his, his throne as king in Jerusalem. Uh, one of the commentaries says, the valley of Megiddo drains into the Jordan River, and so most likely, uh, that when it talks about the blood being four feet high or up to the horse's bridle, it's probably the blood of all the slain like flowing down into the Jordan Valley and, and coming down as a river of blood Uh, that flows down into um, uh, the the Dead Sea. Robert Thomas says, the terminology suggests a sea of blood resulting from a direct confrontation on the field of battle. A depth of blood and the land area covered both uh, are indicative of a massive slaughter and a loss of human life. So again, those are just a lot of different ways of saying God just comes and he destroys all of his enemies, all those who come to fight against him. Joel 3 describes this battle probably well, there's, there's one other place that describes it in a lot of detail. Um, but Joel 3 in the Old Testament talks about this day and this battle. And he says, For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, so when they repent, when God uh, you know, does the new, uh, fulfills the new covenant, brings his people into uh, um, Israel and reigns as their king, he says, I will gather all the nations and I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is the Kidron Valley outside of Jerusalem. And he says, Then I will enter into judgment and with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel. Verse 9, he says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. So, he, I mean, God's saying, bring it. He's like, take all your farming instruments and turn them into to, to instruments of war and come fight me. So he's inviting the nations to come. He says, let the weak men say, I'm a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves together or gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones, and let the nations be aroused, and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. That sounds just like Revelation 14. Come and tread, for the winepress is full. That's Revelation 14, 16, and 19. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision." So again, I'm just putting all those things together to show you this battle of Armageddon and what it looks like biblically. It's a physical battle with physical nations. This is not some spiritual thing. That This is an actual day that will happen when Jesus Christ splits the heavens open, maybe comes in from the south and just works his way up the valley, just trampling his enemies and, and spilling their blood for 200 miles until the whole valley is full of of the bodies of all of his enemies that have come to fight him, along with the the uh, under the leadership of the antichrist and the false prophet. But before we get into a little more of that, one final thing about this description: it says, "On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written: King of Kings and Lord of Lords." This is again another uh, the, the fifth and sixth name given to Christ here at the end, and both are names of God, just like faithful and true at the very beginning. Uh, Jesus Christ is the Lord of lords. He is God, and He is the Lord of all lords, and He is the King of all kings. And basically, this is just describing His absolute, everlasting authority and power forever. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. There is no other, uh, and like I said, this has always been the name of God just a few examples from Scripture in Deuteronomy ten seventeen. It says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Only God is the Lord of lords. For Christ to take this name and not be God, this is blasphemy. He is God. He is man. He is our King, our Lord, our Savior. And He is the everlasting God. Um, and it says, uh, Psalm 136, 6, Give thanks to the Lord of lords for His loving kindness is everlasting. Again, speaking of Yahweh God, uh, a name attributed to Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 6, uh, he talks about Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. So Christ and Christ alone is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality um, and uh, dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honored in eternal dominion. Amen. And again, That's a prayer of Paul's at the very end of 1 Timothy, but we're seeing it happen in real life here in Revelation 19. Uh, And then in Revelation 17, 14, uh, the, the Antichrist and the ten kings that were following him, it says they come to wage war against the Lamb. They know what they're doing, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. So we've already been told the ending here. The Lord of Lords and the King of Kings will overcome the Antichrist who has established himself as the King of Kings here on this earth. But the true King of Kings will come, and he is the one that will, that will defeat the Antichrist and defeat those who have come out to fight against him. And so that is a description of Christ, and the rest of Revelation 19 is a description of his wrath. And that's what we're going to call the second half of what we started last week. Last week we looked at the, reign or the return of Christ our King. And this is the wrath of Christ our King. Like I said, I've already given you a bunch of uh, Old Testament prophecies from Isaiah, from Joel, uh, what we looked at in Revelation 14 and 16 to describe him treading the winepress of his wrath. And here you have a description of what that looks like. Um, And so here is a description of the actual battle. This is the battle of Armageddon uh, in Revelation 19. It says, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in the heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast, the antichrist and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him. We just read about that. Who sat on the horse, which is Christ, and against his army, which is the saints, and it says, and the beast, the antichrist, was seized, and with him the false prophet, who had performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, and the two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from his mouth, or I'm sorry, from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's Armageddon. It's not a big battle. I mean, it's a big battle in the sense of the, the vastness of it. It's not a big battle in the sense of the length uh, or, or the, the amount of fighting that has to happen. The Lord comes and opens his mouth, and the battle's over. Um, and and that's, that's Armageddon. But it's a very graphic and, and bloody picture um, and, it, and it shows the wrath of Jesus Christ. Again, a lot of times people look at the Old Testament and they say it's a wrathful God. And they look at the New Testament. Christ is so loving and wonderful. Well, here you have a New Testament description of Jesus Christ. And it is probably the most bloody and graphic description of God ever given. And it, and it shows what Joel and Isaiah and everything in the Old Testament was talking about. Here is the end game for those who fight Christ. He 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 wipes them out, Um, and so uh, so let's look at the first part of this, and I'm calling this the Great Supper of God. All right, the Great Supper of God. I know it's kind of gross, but this is exactly what we're talking about. (laughs) I mean, this is the best picture I saw on the internet. I was like, that's it. This is this is what we're talking about. (laughs) He says, I I saw an angel standing there in heaven, or in the sun. Sorry, he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds and men, heaven, come and assemble for the Great Supper of God. Um, when he says, then I saw, that's that Kai idon we talked about. This is the second time out of eight times that he'll say this uh, from Revelation 19 through 21.8. And it shows the next part of the sequence of events. So the first time John saw and Christ splits the heavens open and he's coming. And now John sees and his, 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 uh, the vision, his, his uh, sight is diverted to what is happening on earth after Christ splits the heavens open. Um, and like I said, we'll see this over and over through this whole um, uh, narrative here. And he says, what he saw here was an angel standing in the sun, crying out with a loud voice. Again, this is common term knowledge in Revelation. You have angels doing and proclaiming the things of God. Here this angel is standing in the sun. Different commentators have different ideas of what this means. It, just, it literally says, standing in the sun. Some people think he's standing on the sun. Some people think he's standing in front of the sun. And it's just like, you know, the sun glaring behind him. Some people think this is the angel, the fourth angel, uh, with the bowls uh, that controlled the sun, when they, you know, poured out his fourth bowl, and the sun scorched the earth. I don't know if it really matters uh, who the angel is, as much as he is standing in the sun, uh, and, and, and what, what matters here is he cries out with a loud voice uh, for everyone to hear. All right? So here you have an angel, he's come to do God's work, and what he's come is to announce something. But he's not announcing, in the same way that the other angels have, to the people of the Earth, to the saints, to the enemies of God, it's a call to the birds. He's, he's calling out to the birds. It says he says to the birds which fly in mid-Heaven. So this is an angel sent by God to make an announcement to all the birds. And the announcement to the birds that are on Earth is it's supper time. That's the announcement. God basically calls the birds to assemble for the great supper of God. To assemble for the great supper of God. Um, And uh, I just imagine all the birds on earth hearing the voice of this angel immediately obeying the voice of their Lord and coming together for dinner. This is the foreordained supper of God. You know, we talk about the last supper with Jesus Christ and his disciples in the upper room. Well, this is the last supper for the birds on the flesh of the enemies of God, before the return of Jesus Christ. And what this shows is victory is already decided. This isn't arrogance, it's providence. It's just a matter of timing. This isn't going to be much of a battle. It's just going to be dinner. Um, we've already seen this terminology in Matthew 24 and Luke 17. It talks about when Christ returns, wherever the corpse lies, that's where the vultures will gather. So it's talking about his return. Uh, he's going to wipe out his enemies, and, and the birds are coming. Now, I remember uh, one of the first weeks I was in here, we, we talked about this, uh, and I think Carol brought up the the bird, the bird patterns in Israel. I actually read a lot about birds before today. It was, it was actually very interesting. I'm not going to go into all of it because it really, in one sense, it doesn't matter uh, because these birds will come from wherever God wants at that time. I mean, they could come from South America if they want to. They're going to gather for this feast uh, of the Lord. But this is interesting. If you look at the... The migration patterns from Europe to Africa. Every year, they say 2.1 billion birds migrate from from uh, uh, northern Europe, Russia, Europe, down to Africa, and then they come back. They do that twice a year. Well, I mean, there, there's many different migration patterns, but there are a lot that come right through Israel, and uh, and they they said um, uh, it's it's you know a junction between three con- uh, continents. Uh, And the migrating um, birds that come through Israel twice a year are unparalleled anywhere else on the planet. Uh, They believe about 500 million birds cross this narrow airspace twice a year. Um, And uh, because of that, bird enthusiasts visit Israel all the time to to watch these amazing uh, bird migrations. So all that being said, God's already kind of prepared this place to be a natural bird highway. But like I also said, this is an unprecedented uh, call to all the birds of the earth. And so I imagine you just take all those arrows and point them right there, you know. And that's what we're talking about, the great supper of the Lord. Um, And it says that the birds are coming to eat the flesh of kings, to eat the flesh of commanders, to eat the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of the horses that sit on them, all men, free, slave, it doesn't matter. Everyone that's come together against God. In Isaiah 18.6, uh, this is a prophecy about Ethiopia of that day, but it foreshadows a future day where Egyptians worship God in Jerusalem, uh, So, which, is again, only happens in Millennial Kingdom terminology. So we're talking about, in Isaiah, again, Millennial Kingdom stuff, but right before it talks about that, it says in 18.6, they will be left together for mountain, uh, for mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth, and the birds of prey will spend the summer feeding on them, talking about the bodies of, of all those who have been slain. Uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 talk about this. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, you have a description of a final battle of Gog and Magog and all that sort of stuff if you go read it. And some people believe that's the the final battle at the end of the thousand years. Um, Some believe it's the battle that happens at Armageddon. Either way, we're not going to land that plane today. But Ezekiel 39, 17 through 19 does say this. It says, uh, As for you, son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, thus says the Lord, Speak to every kind of bird, to every beast of the field, Assemble and come and gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I'm going to sacrifice for you. So he's telling the birds, this is my sacrifice for you to come and to eat. And and he says, a a great sacrifice in the mountains of Israel that you may eat flesh and drink blood. And you will eat the flesh of mighty men, drink the blood of the princes of the earth. As though they were rams, lambs, goats, and bulls, all of them, uh, fatlings from Bashan, Bashan. And you will eat fat until you are glutted and drink blood until you are drunk from my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. That is uh, Ezekiel's terminology of the Armageddon battle. It's just the sacrifice of God for the birds. Uh, you will be glutted at my table with horses and charioteers and mighty men and all men of war declares the Lord God. So this is, a, again, a description. And... Uh, Henry Morris painted a picture of this, and I just thought this is a vivid way to say it. So as, as these kings gathered together under the leadership of the Antichrist and the false prophet to come and to fight Christ and to fight the people of God, it says the birds of prey began to gather together as well. And they were in the air circling the masses of humanity stretched out before them, um, darkening the sky and undoubtedly filling the hearts of the armies on the ground with gloom and dread. So, again, I don't know what those people are going to be thinking. They're coming out to, to fight a losing battle. And can you imagine just looking up and you just see millions and billions of birds just gathering, just hovering. And, and, and here you are trying to fight Christ. Um, and then comes, actually, this is a really cool picture. Look at this. And that's just in our normal day, without God calling them, you know. But just these swarms of birds, and you just imagine the birds of the earth swarming in to just circling the camp, uh, coming to uh, as they come to to fight Christ. And so it says, and "I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth; their armies were assembled to make war against Him who sat on the horse and His army." And then look at this. So here they are to fight. To, they got the Antichrist there, and they're coming to fight the people of God. And it says, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the sign in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So again, we'll talk about that in a second. But they were seized. They're they're gone. Uh, and, And it says, And then these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed, and the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. These armies come out to fight. And like we said... The sword already comes out of Christ's mouth. This is Christ doing his work. And I don't know what this would look like for the people. But the beasts and the kings have all assembled. The, this is the Antichrist, the king, the ten kings or the allies that, that have assembled with him. We saw that in Revelation 11 and 13 and 17 and 18. Um, and you know the, the way was paved for them to come up. And it says when the, they were seized. And the word seized there, it means they were captured or arrested. They were apprehended. They were caught. They were just like, like fish are caught. And they're just gone. And I just imagine it like that. You know, you see a fish swimming. And the, the other fish that are with the fish, they don't, they don't probably see the line. They're just watching their buddy. And then all of a sudden, buddy's gone. And he's, he's out of the water. And I just imagine it's kind of like that. Here's the Antichrist with all of his armies. They think this is their invincible leader. And then him and the false prophet are just gone. I don't know if they watch their bodies just fling off into the sky. Or if they just, this, whatever it is, they're taken by Christ and immediately thrown into the lake of fire. And it says they were thrown alive. So again, we talked about this a long time ago, and we talked about whether or not this is a resurrected body that had already been prepared for eternal destruction, because we know that all people will be given new bodies that can endure the wrath of God for eternity in the lake of fire. We'll talk about that when we get to the great white throne. But these are the two, only two people, that surpassed the great white throne and are thrown alive into the lake of fire. So whether they already had those bodies, and that's why people thought they were divine and and invincible, or whether in the midst of the snatching, they're given the bodies. I don't know. I don't think you can land that plane. But either way, they are thrown alive immediately into the lake of fire. No great white throne of judgment. These are the first two inhabitants into the eternal wrath of God. Um, and uh, basically, it's just saying they were they were snatched out of sight. And I don't know. Like I said, all these armies and the ten kings and leaders just watched their two leaders just disappear before their eyes, get snatched off the planet. Uh, that's all they saw. They wouldn't have seen the throwing at the lake of fire. But they didn't die. We know that because they were thrown alive into the eternal lake of fire. And we know they were still there burning a thousand years later when Satan is cast into the lake of fire. Um, so, all that being said, the beast and the false prophet are gone. They're seized. They're thrown alive into the lake of fire. So then the question is, what is the lake of fire? And this is the first description we ever have in the Bible of the lake of fire. Um, and uh, it's, it's different than hell, but the same. Uh, we also know that Hades is tossed into the lake of fire at the very end, along with death and everything else. Um, but at the same time, it's the same content, the same concept, and the same purpose. Uh, hell is the wrath of God, the burning wrath of God, is described as fire and brimstone. Um, it, it, the same concept, hell is meant as a prison for angels, a place of holding under the wrath of God until the final day of judgment, which is the great white throne. And then that, all are cast into the lake of fire. And it's the same purpose, again, the wrath of God. So, uh, you know, I I think you can differentiate between hell and the lake of fire, and at the same time, it's the same concept. Both are the eternal wrath of God. Both are impossible to get out of. And both are uh, the Lord pouring out his wrath. The only people that ever come out of hell or out of the abyss or those the Lord allows for his purposes for a certain time. We've seen that during some of the judgments in Revelation. Uh, but, you know, say it's, you know, you got to get that little cartoon image out of your head that Satan is the king of hell. He's not. If you want to say it this way, not, uh, it's not blasphemous, but Christ is the the king, the ruler, the one that, I mean, it's his wrath. Hell is his wrath. So if anyone is king of, of judgment, it's Christ, um, and uh, Satan has no—the last place Satan wants to be is in hell, because when he's in hell, he has no ability to um, uh, to uh, uh, to tempt and to—I um, can't think of the word I'm trying to say—influence the earth at all during the thousand years. That's why there is righteousness and justice and peace and everything for a thousand years. And then when Satan's cast in the Lake of Fire, he is no more. Not that he's annihilated, but that he is separated from any possibility of ever influencing anything. Ever again, so hell and the lake of fire both work in the same way. That they are a prison. That they are the wrath of God. That they are His judgment. That they are eternal. And that they are um, separated from, from all uh, good. Matthew twenty five forty one talks. Christ says um, that He will uh, uh, when there's the judgment of the sheep and goat. He says, "Depart from me, you accursed ones, to the eternal lake of fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels." Uh, and again, I believe that is talking about hell, uh, but both are talked, uh, or talk about um, their, their eternal judgment. So this is the first time it's mentioned in the Bible, but it's not a new concept. Um, and like most of Revelation, it's just a further description and more clarification for other things that have already been said. Does that make sense? Um, like we've already seen with the different Armageddon battles and Joel and Zechariah and Isaiah... Revelation just gives you more description and tells you when it's going to happen. And I think it's the same thing with Lake of Fire. This stuff has been, uh, you know, we, we, we've seen God's judgment, we've seen uh, weeping, gnashing of teeth, burning, brimstone, all that sort of stuff. And here you have what the end of that looks like. is the eternal Lake of Fire. We're going to uh, tackle this a little more. I didn't put it up here. In Revelation 20, because again, at the end of the thousand years, the devil is also thrown into the Lake of Fire. So, uh, here is Satan thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. And it says where the beast and the false prophet are also. And, and the language there is currently. So a thousand years later, they're still there burning in the lake of fire. So it's not, you know, that, there's, there's no annihilation. Um, and it says, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that is the lake of fire. It's eternal torment day and night forever and ever under the wrath of God. Described as as fire and burning. And then, and then it talks about the great white throne. The dead are raised Uh, These are not the dead that are in Christ, but the dead are not in Christ, and they are judged by the things written in the books. Uh, And it says, and then, verse 13 of Revelation 20, the sea gave up the dead, death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, everyone according to their deeds. And then verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So there's no more purpose for hell because there's no more need for that. And so even that is cast into the lake of fire along with death. Um, and this is the second death of the lake of fire. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. So, we'll talk more about that when we get there, but for right now, it's just, this is the end of the story for the beast and the false prophet. They're done. Beast and the pro- false prophet thrown into the lake of fire, which leaves all of the rest of the people who came out to fight behind them, and that would probably be the most terrifying moment before their eternal judgment. It says, and then the rest, everyone left, were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of Christ, him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. I think that verse describes all that other stuff we just read about. In Joel, and in Isaiah, this is Christ possibly coming in from Basra, and just just, you just it's just blood all the way up through the valley, and they're done. And then he reigns. On his throne, and I don't know if the armies are with him, and I don't know if it's just this. I don't know if they will visually see it, if they'll just hear it, if blood will just start spilling everywhere. Um, it reminds me, and actually, this is this is interesting. It reminds me. I don't know if you remember the story in Second Chronicles thirty-two and Second Kings nineteen, when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, had come to fight against Judah. They come. To, it's one hundred eighty-five. Well, I don't know how many people are out there, but but. That night, one hundred and eighty five thousand men were slain by the angel of the Lord, and they just died and, and, and I mean just again it's just it was simple they just the angel Lord came they 're done uh, It describes it says the angel the Lord sent an angel, destroyed every mighty warrior and commander, and officer in the camp of Assyria in second kings, it says it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck one hundred and eighty five thousand in the camp, and when the men rose early in the morning, all of them were dead, so someone was alive to rise and to to see 185,000 people dead. Uh, But that's what happened. Now that, what's even more interesting, is that same story is recounted in the prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah is not a narrative. It's prophecy. Most of the prophecies have to do with the redemption of Israel and the day of the Lord that we're talking about here. But right in the middle of those prophecies, he gives a three-chapter narrative describing that day that Sennacherib came to fight. And, And it describes that story... And it talks about the angel of the Lord wiping them out. Now again, I'm not going to say something that we don't know, but could it be that the Lord inserted that in there to remind the people of Israel, this is simple for me. All I have to do is breathe. And the whole Assyrian army is wiped out. Sennacherib went back and then was assassinated in Assyria after that. And he's like, and it's going to happen again at the end. And it's going to be much greater than 185,000 people. It's going to be millions upon millions. Henry Morris in his commentary described it this way. And I thought, again, he just does a good job, I feel like, of telling the story uh, biblically. He says, After their leaders, this mass of people, were snatched away, the terrified armies will await their own fate. And they will not have to wait long. he says, A mighty cutting wind will sweep across the ranks up the 180-mile column of mass men and horses, proceeding like a slicing sword directly from the powerful word of the majestic rider as he rides up from Eden. Like grapes trampled in the winepress, the blood bursts from their veins, and death is instantaneous. Soon the great trough is flowing with blood, and his vesture dips therein while he treads the winepress alone. The spirits of the slain multitude will depart into Hades, and there to await the judgment of the great white throne. And then the great cloud of ravenous birds swoop down from the heavens, gorging themselves on the flesh and the blood of the one high and mighty rebels, against a long-suffering God. Gradually, the earth will be cleansed of its pollution, leaving the bones soon to disintegrate and be scattered into the wind. And I, I just think what that would look like, I don't think any Hollywood movie or imagination could describe it or envision it better than what the Bible says. Zechariah, speaking of this day, says it this way. This again is the same, same battle, same description, same day. This is what Zechariah says in Zechariah 14. He says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Again, Armageddon terminology. The city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravaged, half of the city exiled. The rest of the people uh, will not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day, there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And he says, and now this will be the plague which the Lord will strike all the people who have gone out to war against Jerusalem. Again, this has not happened. This, this war has not happened yet. It says their flesh, their, their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, their eyes will rot in their sockets, their tongue will rot in their mouths. It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them and they will seize one another's hand and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of the, uh, the other. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold, silver, garments, and abundance. So also like this plague will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and the cattle that will be in those camps. Again, Zechariah is describing some, some day that comes where the, the Lord strikes with his sword of vengeance and, and you just have death immediate death by the hands of others, by the, the, their flesh rotting uh, on their, their bones as they stand there. Whatever it is and whatever it looks like, again, it's just going to be an instantaneous slaughter of all of those who come to fight against him. Uh, again, I'm quoting Henry Morris here. He pulls together prophecies to say this sentence. I don't think, oh, I did put them up there. So he says, and so these are different prophecies that talk about this day And he kind of made a sentence out of it. He says, "'The heaven-bathed sword will strike through the kings in the day of his wrath, and he shall judge among the heathen, and he shall fill the places with the dead bodies, and he shall crush the heads over many countries. And it will not be a sort of steel that sheds the blood of the wicked, for out of the mouth goes a sharp sword that he should smite the nations. And the Lord will roar from Zion. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked.'" And then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. His powerful word is sharper than any two-edged sword when he finally speaks in judgment. So that's, that's what Christ splits the heavens open to come and to do. Before he, his, the earth is ready for his bride, he wipes out all of his enemies and it's talking about a physical day, a physical battle, or a, it's not just a spiritual thing. We're talking about a day where his enemies are judged. Like I said, there's one other uh, verse in, in, or place in the Old Testament that describes this day with, with um, detail. It says in Zephaniah 1, "Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly, a day of wrath." Is that day a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. So, there's no hope in standing against Christ. We watch Babylon fall before this, the pleasures of the world, the riches of the world, the religions of the world, all the things of the world they, 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 they just disintegrate at, at His word, in His timing. And then the, the greatest leader that the world will have ever seen, an, an invincible, perhaps risen from the dead, unable to die again leader, who unites the world to come fight God at the very end, even that, just by His word. I mean, He's, he's seized and thrown into the lake of fire. And then by the word that comes out of his mouth, all the armies that have come to fight against him are slaughtered instantaneously. Our Lord, Jesus Christ, is the invincible, almighty, sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords. The, the earth belongs to him. All things were created by him and through him and for him. This is his planet. It's his creation. It's his throne. It's his people that belong to him. He will wipe out His enemies. He will cleanse the earth. He will redeem His people. The sons of God will be revealed together with Him and will come and be on this earth. He's already proclaimed beginning to end. And so there's, there's nowhere to hide. There's no possibility to fight. It's either repentance and total submission to a God that came and shed His own blood to pay for what we deserve to pay and to receive His eternal reward and inheritance and grace and love and mercy forever. That's our Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But to reject that and to stand against Him, I mean, if you survive to that day, this is all you have to look forward to. If you die before that day, well then we'll talk about that soon. There will be a resurrection of the dead who who have rejected... The king here in this life. And it will be, there's no more hope for these people than there are for the people that will be raised on that day. It will be instantaneous judgment for all eternity into the lake of fire. So there should be something in all mankind that fears this. It is a healthy thing to fear God, to dread God as a sinner. And as a child of God that's been redeemed by his blood to fear him because of, of who he is, but to, but to know that he loves you and to know that, that what we just described there, if you want to say it that way, that was endured by Christ for us on the cross. I'm not saying, you know, I'm, not, I'm just trying to say that the judgment that God will pour out on his enemies for his children, he poured out that wrath on his son so that there would be no wrath for us to have to face or to worry about or to fear because that wrath is complete. The work is finished. The job was done at the cross. And if you believe in Christ, then all we have to look forward to is returning with Him clothed in white because of what our God has done. But I, don't, I think it's good to let these verses speak for themselves and not to try to, to, to make it less... Awful and terrifying and graphic than it is because there needs to be something in all of us to understand this is Christ. This is the work of Christ. And He will slaughter His enemies. And He'll do it instantaneously. But in the same moment, He will also be rescuing His bride, redeeming His creation, preparing a place for all those who belong to Him to live, to rule, and to reign with Him forever. He will heal this earth His rule on this earth will be wonderful and majestic, and we'll talk about that. I mean, from here on out, until we get to that final great white throne, it's some really amazing stuff. But you don't get the blessings and the grace and the goodness of His rule without understanding that this must happen. Sin must be dealt with, and His enemies must be destroyed before there can be peace and justice and righteousness and and, and, and truth reigning on the earth. And so, like I said, if there's anything to take away from this, for us that are in here, I think the majority of us are probably professed to be His. And so rejoice. Rejoice. This is what your King will do. And you will be coming with Him. If, 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 if you're sitting in here and, and, and there's concern, I don't know if I belong to Him or I feel like I'm a hypocrite or I'm, I, you know, I mean, again, this goes right along with what Shane's been talking about the last two weeks. When there is hypocrisy, get rid of that. There, on this day... There's, there is no hypocrisy. The one whose eyes are a flame of fire and judges all things perfectly with perfect discernment comes to destroy those who do not fully belong to Him whose heart is not wholly His. So hypocrisy, you, can't, you can only hide for a little while. And hypocrisy is only good to fool other people. But it does no good to fool God. There's no fooling Him. He judges perfectly. So again, in the end, your only choice is 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 Christ as as a loving Lord, Savior, Friend, Redeemer, God and Father, or Christ as as the judge who comes to tread the wine press of the the, the winepress of God's fierce wrath. And and again, that's that's terrifying. So repent, believe in him. He endured the wrath of God already for you, if you will just believe in him. Any questions? Yes. Maybe, definitely these people. If if they're, they're I think you could, we'll we'll get we'll get to this because in the millennial kingdom there are those who feign allegiance. There are unbelievers in the millennial kingdom. Now the the, the two only possibilities are that these are uh, offspring of those marked by Christ that that were b- offspring of believers that that as they're raised in the millennial kingdom don't believe, or. That there are some, and, and I, I think there are biblical places that you can see, there, there, there are some that survive the day of the Lord. Not, not any of these in the valley. I think all those who have come to fight are gone, but could there be those who are not with him, but do not come out to fight, that are somewhere on the planet, that make it through, that, that do feign worship during the thousand years because he rules with a rod of iron? I think possibly. Possibly. So I, I don't want to land the plane in the sense of that there is no inhabitant on the earth uh, at this point, because I don't I don't know if I could say that. Yeah. The sheep and goat judgment seems to follow this, right? Well, you do take care of Yeah, but the the thing is, is with the sheep and goat judgment, you're you're talking about casting them into judgment. Which, yes, if if that happens here, then that means there is no unbeliever on the planet right and so the only possibility from believers the there's no unbeliever on the planet yeah but i don't know if you can be dogmatic about that and i'm going to study that because that is a that's a big question i don't know if you can be dogmatic about that yeah sure Yeah, yeah. Is that this? Uh, made a at this point? Well, I think when it talks about them being made a footstool, it's just saying that all of his enemies have been put down. I mean, they, like... So this it, would be the fulfillment of that? Yeah, but I, I, I believe, you know, because if you think about it this way, too, just remember that there's many days of the Lord. You know, there's many days of judgment. There's many days where his enemies have been put down and, and they are under his feet. So... Uh, I just think that's a comprehensive way of saying, there will, the fi- yes, this is the final day, because this is when he does come rule and reign. And so, this is Armageddon, yes. The, this terminology here, yeah. Everything I showed you today, I think is very clear Old Testament Armageddon terminology. What they're talking about is just a, an overall, it's basically saying the timing of Christ coming to reign as king, uh, it's, it's about time. And, and that 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 timing is when all of his enemies are are under him, and he comes and reigns. So, like I said, I think, I think that's, you, I think you could put all of history into that, but for sure this day is that final day of the enemies are done, and he so comes and reigns. That's right. Yeah, and so, that's right. And so that's what I was saying. I, I could be, I'm, I'm okay as we study this more if we get to that place where we're like, yeah, you know what, I, I think the best biblical answer is that there is no unbeliever on the planet for at least a moment, you know what I mean? <laughs> when he comes and reigns. But I just, I know, and like I said, I just can't point to it right now because I haven't, I'm not digging there. But I know there's Old Testament terminology that seems to allude to the fact that people make it through this. Not, not, this, not that they're on the battlefield, but they, they, there are unbelievers that, that, that are not dead when Christ begins to reign. And, and like I said, I just, I, I didn't study it. My mind's not there. I just don't want to. But... Either way, if anyone makes it uh, through, I mean, these are people that are not gathered on the day of battle. They're not with the Antichrist and the armies. They're not from Basra to Megiddo. Um, and they're spared only by Christ for a reason. Does that make sense? But again, you've got to think, because he talks about the days being cut short with all the judgment and all that sort of stuff. You could say the days are cut short because he says no man would survive if they weren't. Uh, but you could say that was just for the believers that he cut the days short, the days of judgment. Um, but like I said, I just don't want to go too far because I need to study that. I'm curious about that because when Zephaniah says that all the inhabitants of the earth you making know, thinking complete and it makes it sound like on this day that it includes everybody. Yeah, and it could. I think, you know, and, and that, that, yeah, I mean, I think that's a verse right there that. that very clearly says, all the inhabitants of the earth. <laughs> so that might just be it. And, and, and I'm okay with that. I mean, uh, obviously, some of the inhabitants of the earth make it through those who are marked by him, the 144,000 chosen, and any of those who walk, there are some that walk bodily into the millennial kingdom without dying. So we definitely can say, I know for sure that the Bible backs up the fact that you can die to the millennial kingdom, there's sin during the millennial kingdom, uh, that there's judgment in the millennial kingdom. So there's got to be... Uh, people that that are able to If they were all born, second, you know, uh, resurrected, which will be the saints in that, then there's no death, there's no offspring, there's no sin. Um, well, Psalm 2, I think, is talking about this. You know, when, when you read Psalm 2, he's talking about uh, uh, laughing at the kings of the earth that come and to fight against them. I think it's just basically he's... Again, it's a poetic way of describing uh, the, the, the Lord. So I have my yeah, but, he, but he's saying that ahead of time to anyone that basically speaks. Any, anyone that devises plans against God, he's like, I've already established my king. Mm-hmm. Psalm 2 says, why are the nation uproar? Are the people doing a vain thing? Could that be talking about this? Absolutely. This is just another vain thing that the kings of the earth have done. Could it be talking about the, end of the when, when Yeah. The end of the well, see, that's the thing, too, and we're going to talk about that. Even Armageddon battle, I think, is a type of the Gog-Magog battle or the, you know, the final battle. So, again, and that's why I, thought, I don't know if I can land the plane on Ezekiel 38 and 39 because there's some things there. In Ezekiel 38, it talks about them coming up to fight against the city that already has peace, that has no walls. That's not happened yet here in the Armageddon battle. But at the end, the Gog and Magog battle, though, you don't have, like, it does call for the vultures and all that sort of stuff, and that doesn't seem to happen at the end of the millennial thing. Or the, the, you know, so, again, I think it's one of those things that there's, we're looking at it from this perspective, and it may be a description of two battles or one battle as a type. So that, that's how a lot of prophecies work. You know, when They talk about Christ, they talk about him coming and dying, and they talk about him ruling and reigning forever in the same sentences. In one, they're at least separated by 2,000 years, but maybe more. So there's that part of prophecy as well. We do know that God, what we do know about prophecy is God always does exactly what he says he does, even to the, to the um, minute details of, of river descriptions and name places and, and numbers. You know what I mean? So he's not, it's not hyperbolic language that could mean a lot of things. It means one thing and he does it exactly like he says it. What we also know about prophecy is depending on where you are, like we said, you know, when Isaiah is speaking about Christ, I mean, he's seeing the whole picture we live in the middle of Christ already coming, dying, being smitten by God, rising from the dead, but not yet reigning and ruling. And that was all in one chapter of Isaiah. Does that make sense? So we can look at Isaiah 53 and go, some of that's done, some of that's to come. But Isaiah wouldn't have seen that. It's all to come for him. And so I think we're in the same spot when it comes to these things. Revelation, we, that's what I was saying at the beginning. We know it's going to happen like this. But when we get into that detail of like, is it Zechariah 38 and 39? this battle or that battle. I feel like maybe both, you know, part of it is a, you know, or maybe the Armageddon battle is a type of that final battle. There are two battles. I mean, that's obvious in Revelation 19 and 20. Um, If you're like, what are you talking about? We're going to get there. This is all, this is exactly what's coming. So right now we're at Armageddon. Armageddon's done. Christ has split the heavens. The saints have come with him. He just wiped out his enemies physically on earth. So the enemies that come to fight behind the Antichrist and the false prophet, the ten kings, the allies, all that, they're gone. Um, some of those other things were good questions that we're going to have to tackle over the next few weeks because the next thing is he's going he's to um, cast Satan like a fire. That's the next Kai Adon. And then I saw him get Satan, binds him. I'm sorry, not like a fire, into hell, into the abyss. And then he rules and reigns, I think from four to, what, seven or eleven, uh, on earth for a thousand years. Now, Revelation only has a few verses about that, but that's where the Old Testament just explodes with awesome content about the millennial reign of Christ. So we're going to camp out there a little bit, because I want you to see what the Bible says about the millennial reign of Christ, because it's, it's wonderful. But it's different than the eternal kingdom, the... New heavens and the new earth. Those are different things. Very different. Um, so, anyway, it's, 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 it's neat. Uh, but like I said, in the midst of the neatness, don't forget why this matters today. This matters today because this is our king. This is what is coming. This is, we have nieces and nephews and grandmas and grandpas and cousins and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters that will face the wrath of Christ most likely at the great white throne of judgment. I doubt many of them will be here on this day of battle. Nonetheless, they will face Christ as, as a wrathful God because they've rejected him. And so we got to share the gospel. We must live a holy life in front of them. we got to do this for our children and for our, our colleagues at work. And, and then you got to examine your own heart to make sure there's no hypocrisy so that you truly are what you believe you are. Because he discerns perfectly, you know. And so again, I just think these are, that's what makes eschatology so wonderful. And don't forget to also rejoice. <laughs> if you're burdened and overwhelmed by just the evil around you and the wickedness of this world and the evil of your own heart that you just can't seem to shake, well, there is a day of rest coming. And that's what makes this stuff so wonderful. There is a day where we will not battle anymore. There is a day where there is no more indwelling sin. There is a day where our Lord will cleanse us. We will be clothed in white, and there we will be made like him. We will be righteous and pure and clean. That's what we long for. We long for the day that we see him face to face. We're made like him, and we'll be with him. And so any true believer, this is, this is joy. This is wonderful. But it comes, it comes with judgment. So let me pray for us.